What's up, everyone? I'm Katherine Rudder, and this is Life in the Fast Chain. Coming from the studio, it's a beautiful thing. I am joined by Charlie Cooper, our Chief Communications Officer here at R3. Charlie leads external affairs globally for R3, covering regulatory affairs, communications, and public relations. Charlie is a great time, a good friend, and extremely important in shaping the way we talk about emerging tech, specifically blockchain, and now confidential computing with the release of R3's Conclave. On this episode, we talk about what the heck is going on with cryptos right now, how the money pouring into cryptos is a little different than what's being poured into blockchain and other emerging technologies. Uh, We discuss how this focus on crypto and blockchain impacts heavily regulated and complex institutions and what that means for them. Um, We talk about how R3 is investing in new tech and uh, we talk about our development fund And we have a lot of fun in the studio along the way. I hope you guys enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed recording. Let's get to it. Mr. Charlie Cooper, thank you for joining me in the studio today. Catherine, I've been waiting for my invitation for six years. It's so good to be on the podcast. I'm so happy to have you, and I'm happy that you wore your pashmina today. It's about 20 degrees below zero in here. I'm glad you're wrapped <laughs> in a blanket, too. Uh, I am. I you thought we could afford heat, but apparently not. You have to be. The office is so cold. It's cold as ever, honestly. Yeah, it is. Do you feel like it's because maybe there are less people in the office right now? Uh I don't know enough about the f- heat of uh, the physics of heat. So uh, maybe, maybe that's too fewer people. Although we got a pretty good crowd today. We do. Um, and more people have been coming in day by day. You've been coming into the office for quite some time now, right? Yeah. I got back just after January 3rd. Okay. Um, and I've been coming in ever since about three or four days a week. So it feels nice. Good. Do you yeah. feel like um, within the past few weeks, it's been a big uptick since then because people are getting vaccinated and feeling more comfortable at least? Yeah. I think you, I think you see a lot of people wanting to come back in. There's a lot of energy in the office. Yeah. Um, and it's even the little things like making the commute and getting up in the morning and actually taking a shower and going to the office instead of sitting at your dining room table that has people pretty jazzed. Yeah. It yeah. used to be a hassle and now it's a, like a moment of excitement to get up and get going to work. I know. I know. I feel like it's at least more structure. Like I could see myself just getting into this pattern of working and working hard, but lazily working. Right. And maybe coming to the office with more or less frequency, depending on dog sitters and other considerations. I had no idea that it would be like this. (laughs) How do I know? Welcome to being a dog owner. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. Um, Trying to figure that out, which is why I'm not coming into the office as much as I would like to be. But I still am trying to make an effort to come in a few times every week, especially now that there's so many more people in. Like before, when the office was open, when people were still a little uncomfortable, and obviously there are different levels of comfort. Um, but yeah, I'm very comfortable coming into the office. I'm so excited to be able to. I know not that many. I mean, the rest of the world is kind of opening. It's opening up, but we're lucky we can be here. We are. You know, I, I don't know how many people remember this or were even aware of this, but when we started R3 six plus years ago, we decided to co-locate the engineering team in London and, and ask them to come to the office, which was a bit different than many technology companies, which allowed people to work from home on yeah. a more frequent basis. And one of the powerful things that we found is their ability to collaborate and think creatively and be innovative was yeah. multiplied exponentially when they were in the same area together. Mm-hmm. And 
many people who I think had preferred to be at home for a while when they started coming in with more frequency, realized the benefits they were getting of it. Yeah. Um, and that we as a company were getting out of it. And I think there are a lot of people that may have gotten used to the COVID lockdown. Oh, totally. But are probably ready to come back when they get the opportunity. So we're, yeah. we're looking forward to welcoming you back. Uh, totally. On a personal note, I'm getting a little sick of the COVID bod. Like if I have to see other people, I'm going to need to start getting my SHIT together. <laughs> I can't comment on that. I don't notice the bodies of my coworkers. <laughs> that's a good. I will leave that to you. Very, to, yeah, very exactly. good <laughs> Yeah, that's a strict policy I have. <laughs> that's a good policy. Yes, I think indeed. more people should probably abide by that and maybe not bring bring it up uh, on their own. But um, so what are you most looking forward to aside from being in the office and being able to be more social um, as the world is on the mend? Um, but before we jump into it, what would you say outside of coming back into the office you're most looking forward to in the next few weeks slash months? Post-COVID? Yeah. Or post-lockdown? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't think this is overstating it. I think there's something really uh, unfortunate that's been going on where we, we during the crisis, begin to look at other people as a reason for fear mm -hmm. um, and a threat. Mm -hmm. And this can be even people we're close to who may not necessarily have been as careful as those of us who have during COVID. Mm -hmm. It could be someone walking down the street or on a subway platform or in a crowded market when you're going to get lunch. Um, people became we're social creatures to begin with and we mm -hmm. want to spend time together and there's been this period where we're actually inherently mistrustful of them and worried about the threat that they could pose to us or our loved ones yeah and that beginning to fade away and people being more and more comfortable connecting the way that they used to yeah i think uh i can i can at least speak for myself I, i'm at sometimes having to restrain myself because it were up to me to go around hugging everyone it i feels was so just good thinking to be back. that i know yeah. i know that's a very good response i agree it's Something that I think I'm also a very like excited person if I you could are. if I could run yes. into the office and give everyone a hug like good morning honey have a great day I would but I can't and you used to <laughs> and I used it's to it's coming back I know it is coming back we have two of the louder people in the office in the studio right now so it's kind of nice and if they'd seen us setting up for the podcast uh, and heard us <laughs> setting up for the podcast before you hit record I'm yeah. not sure anybody would be listening to us anymore but we're professionals yeah. now we, yes. we really locked it down we've the turned it on so tell me uh tell me a little bit about your role at r3 why should anyone care what you have to say they shouldn't really <laughs> um uh <laughs> no in a way i guess uh when you say care what i have to say i guess uh that's the role itself as i do a lot of saying i do yeah. a lot of talking mm -hmm. so i'm the chief communications officer which is a combination at r3 of not just the communications and pr mm -hmm. uh, but also a fair bit of internal comms and uh, a very healthy dose of government relations and um yeah. uh, uh regulatory affairs so a lot of the work that we do centers around convincing public policymakers of the benefits of the technology to allow innovative solutions to work with us to build those solutions. So regardless of what role I'm in, whether I'm PR guy in any given day or whether I'm the government relations guy, uh, I'm trying to communicate the story of the company and also the industry to various different stakeholders that are out there and honestly help uh, help pave the way for a welcoming environment for us and frankly, sometimes our, our allies, but also our competitors, because yeah. this is a nascent enough industry that when you spend time making the case for some of us, you're actually making the case for all of us yeah. in a lot of ways. And um, every time that one of us goes in to sit with a central bank or do an interview with the FT or what have you, 
if we put our best foot forward, we all benefit from that. Mm-hmm. And if we decide or we don't show up to the game quite the way we should, there's a mark on all of us. And so it's in a way incumbent upon all of us uh, to work together to put that best foot forward. Yeah, that's a good point, especially because the last uh, few years, there's uh, ups and downs, and we'll talk about the crypto craze um, that's happening right now. But I feel like you're right. It's kind of like a rising tide lifts all boats situation of trying to get people to understand why this technology is important. What do you think within, because you've been at R3 forever, um, what do you think? Forever's a long time, I got to tell you. It's a long (laughs) long time. time. I show the scars. It feels like forever. Yeah, it does, it does. Um, Yeah, I started as a sprightly young (laughs) 20-something. I'm still in my 20s. Yeah, you're still in your 20s. Unfortunately, (laughs) not all of us are that young. Doesn't feel like it. Let me tell you. Thank you. Um, (laughs) That's not what my COVID bot says. Um, (laughs) (laughs) what would you say within the past six years has been one of the tougher hurdles uh in the space because there there must be a lot so that's probably a loaded question well it's there have been several Mm -hmm. um in some ways i think the toughest hurdle in the six seven years is something we may be facing again with this with this current Uh, Mm -hmm. skyrocket of crypto prices and various different coins out there um, is convincing governments, convincing corporations, convincing mainstream financial institutions, Mm -hmm. um, convincing various different entities uh, that crypto is, is far more than, than drug dealers and, and gun runners. Uh, There was a real impression when we got, when we launched the company uh, that long ago um, that, that crypto was, was designed for nefarious purposes. And the yeah. reality is it's not. Are yeah. there bad actors in the space? There are, but there are bad actors in every space. And that is in no way the predominant user base uh, or, or developers or the thinkers around crypto. Uh, but we had to spend a lot of our time telling that story. I mean, I sit in the communications yeah. role, so it's about telling that story to reporters and through various different media outlets. But it's also meeting one-on-one with government stakeholders around the world, tax authorities, derivatives and securities regulators, central bankers, law enforcement, et cetera, and convincing them of the benefits of, of whether it be crypto itself, the underlying technology, DLT, blockchain, which we're doing. Now we're expanding it at R3 into confidential computing and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the hardest part, I think, initially was getting over that skepticism or that concern that existed with many stakeholder groups. Yeah. And I think there is a worry that as these uh, as many of these coins begin to skyrocket the way they have been recently, mm-hmm. uh, we face a different problem, which is a reputational problem, not around nefarious actors, yeah. but around consumer protection um, okay. and around the ideas, uh, or, or around, uh, um, around the way in which people are investing in these and they may or may not get hurt, depending on which way prices go. Yeah. Um, uh, not necessarily uh, investors that are sophisticated. I use the term sophisticated in line with with regulatory guidelines. Yep. Um, that there are a lot of people playing in these markets who probably don't necessarily understand the risks. And if things do not go well in the long run for them, and there's a critical mass of people that suffer as a result of that, that will bring criticism across the industry far more broadly, not just the issuers of those individual coins, but any of us that are deemed to be in that bucket. And that's yeah. something that we're, we're looking at and we're, we're trying to work against now. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of money going to into cryptos right now. What is that about? Is it just this? I mean, I if I have another one of my friends who is not in this industry who just texts me like, Doge, what's going on? Like, I swear. <laughs> I'm like, what, what's happening? What's going on? I, uh, 
I have to tell you, I, I have run various different businesses in my career and, and more <laughs> uh, sort of accepted or standardized financial products. And I am by no means an expert in them. I certainly am not an expert mm-hmm. in crypto and what's going on. I think there are a variety of factors that are going into mm-hmm. uh, going into it. Um, and I'll tell you one factor is actually the excitement of its very existence. Hype. Um, it is. It, 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 and it is a, there is, there is a, there is hype here. Um, does it qualify as the Danish tulip bulb mania of, of whenever it was. I, I don't know that. I don't yeah. know whether the prices come back down to earth or whether they continue to go up. I'm certainly not, a, I have no ability to predict that. Yeah. But the very existence of new products like this, the very existence of ideas uh, that excite people, um, theories of decentralized finance and the way in which the current system works and how it might be re- revamped in the future, the ability to have a piece of that, to invest in a piece of that, um, to invest in a particular instrument that moves a hell of a lot faster and farther than the stock market or the bond market or any of these other markets in any given days, that attracts an, a, a ton of enthusiasm. And yeah. sometimes it's from very sophisticated and thoughtful investors. And sometimes it's, it's, it's people that are going along for the ride, but I get it. I mean, there is, there is an, it, it's infectious, right? If yeah. everyone else is excited in a room, it's hard not to get excited too. Yeah. And I feel like we're seeing a lot of that now. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, um, it, it's just wild seeing this and you, we really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, when, when, Bitcoin hit, I think, like 20,000. We were like, what's going on? (laughs) And now it's at over 60. And I mean, Bitcoin is just one of them. We've we've seen so many of the other coins, the smaller coins, just suddenly get traction. I mean, I've kept my eye just because it's kind of, I don't want to equate it to like a drug, but it's a little addicting for me, at least at this point. I kind of get it. Like it's addicting looking to these things, looking at these things. Like the other day, uh, I mean, months ago, I was uh, looking, at, talking to my brother and looking into like, you know, we talk about zero proof, um, zero knowledge, knowledge proof technology. So I'm like, oh, Zcash. Da, da, da. And I was just looking at it. And I'm like, you know what? I'll, I'll get one. It's like $63. Like, meh, uh, I'll do that. And now it shot up to like $350. i am like, that's pretty sick. Yeah. <laughs> so I, get, I mean, small scale, but I do get it watching. And every day I'm like looking back like, wow. That said, this can all come crashing down and like then then what? There's no like safety net. Well, the the concern if it comes down to the earth, I think is broader than just the people who invested in yeah. it. Although obviously it's it's incredibly meaningful for those people who get hit, who get and, and, and potentially hurt by it. Yes. The the difficulty of this is we were talking earlier about how we're sort of all in this together. The rising tide floats mm-hmm. all boats and whatever the opposite of that that statement is. Oh yeah. Um is that there will be a bit, I worry, a pox on all our houses. Mm. Um, and that even those of us like R3 that actually were a software company, we develop enterprise blockchain, we develop confidential computing solutions, we work with partners to develop various different applications that can be used across all sorts of heavily regulated and highly complex industries. Um, that distinction between us and cryptos might at times get lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the distinctions you can even make between, let's say, Bitcoin and Ether on the one hand and various different other cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. get lost. Totally. Um, regulators debate this all the time is where's the line between what is mm-hmm. legitimate in air quotes and versus what is not. Um, if, if things do go south, there's going to be a lot of blame to go around. Um, and there are going to be a lot of companies that, that are viewed as being part of the, whatever problem cr- is created 
even if those of us weren't, uh, yeah. even if we were sticking to our knitting and just building software for big companies, which is, and small companies, but but building them for other entities, what they were doing and not issuing tokens or what have you. Yeah. But but I, I, I would caution the one thing is, it's just too early to tell, I think, what is going to happen to crypto. There are the evangelists yeah. who think it's going to continue to go up. There are the doomsayers, if you will, who think <laughs> it's going to crash down the ground of the earth. The fact is, these are. This is such a new asset class. Mm -hmm. There are no fundamentals. Mm -hmm. I always get a kick out of it when you read certain articles that try to do fundamentals analysis, technical analysis that yeah. has been deployed in debt and equity markets for for decades, and try to apply those same rules and charting plans to decide whether or not a particular coin is going to go up or down. Those rules don't in any don't way apply. apply to this. So, mm -hmm. so uh, I think it's too early to tell. And I'm I'm the last person to tell someone to invest or not invest in crypto because I honestly don't have a, an answer that I feel confident in. Yeah, yeah. And I have said this before. I'll say it again. No one should listen to me about any of this. <laughs> <laughs> me either. But but no. here we are talking about <laughs> it at length. Yeah, <laughs> here we are on a podcast. We'll take care of um, it. Yeah. <laughs> listen on Apple Podcasts. So, uh, but yeah, you're right. It's there's so more much more at risk. Um, then just like Zcash coming back down to $63. Like, um, but so, so stepping aside from cryptos, putting that in a, a bucket to the side, um, there's also a lot of money going into blockchain and confidential computing outside of cryptocurrencies. So what's that about? Well, I think there are several different theories. I think the most obvious one and the one that we're hearing most from our clients is that we're coming out of, I would call it the COVID haze mm -hmm. uh, or a bit of a COVID hangover. When the pandemic hit, there were such concerns about the global economic picture mm -hmm. uh, and, and how significant a downturn it might be that the types of monies that were being invested by companies in new technologies and innovative technologies and creative technologies really began to shrink. You saw innovation yeah. in R&D budgets at times get canceled out or, or dramatically curtailed. There was this period when nobody knew what was happening tomorrow, much less six months from now or a year from now. Yeah. And therefore, spending money um, outside of a core business is very intimidating, and it certainly is for large organizations. And I think you saw a real curtailing of that spend. Mm -hmm. And I think now, as you're beginning to see an economic upturn, and by no means are we through the pandemic. I mean, certainly the, the United States and the UK and various different other countries and certain developed countries are mm -hmm. beginning to turn the corner, I would say. I'm no yeah. virologist. I don't know enough yeah. about the medicine, but but it feels that way. And, and we, we're, we're really seeing an economic upturn. There's a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of suffering to come to the rest of the world. And what impact mm -hmm. that will have economically, I think no one can say. But yeah. what I, I think we can say is that in many of the G7 and G20 qu uh, countries, mm -hmm. we are seeing all sorts of activity where people have, after curtailing it, are actually the pendulum sw swinging to the other side, where because what COVID did was lay bare dramatic inefficiencies, dramatic problems that these institutions were having with their legacy computer systems. Yeah. When you have to flip a switch and send a company of even 50 people at home uh, 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 to go work from home overnight, multiply that with some of these large companies that imply 10,000, 50,000, yeah. 100,000 people, um, the the load that you find on various different legacy systems is, is more than I think they could bear. And I think there was a realization during COVID that, well, maybe we can't spend it now, but we're going to have to spend it. It taught, I think, corporate world a lesson that innovation is no longer an option. It's a necessity. Yeah. And now I think it's the time to turn to it uh, across a whole different 
uh, all different levels of business and beginning putting the money into the innovation that they've been holding back on for a year. So I think the pendulum swung back and here we are uh, uh, seeing this money really flooding back in. It's, and honestly, it's quite encouraging. And frankly, even R3 is 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 part of the spending game because we're making investments all over the place. Yeah, yes. So you make two good points that I want to touch on. Firstly, um, with R3 and R3 uh, Corporate Development Fund, we're investing in different um, companies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so the the story of the Corporate Development Fund at R3 actually started a long time ago, and yeah. we have been quietly uh, investing in companies uh, now for well over a year and almost two years, mm-hmm. we made a decision, um, several years ago that the, that the Corda ecosystem, the R3 ecosystem, Corda is obviously our, our software, mm-hmm. um, R3, the company, um, that the ecosystem would thrive better if not only were we generating the best software possible, mm-hmm. but that way we, we had a healthy ecosystem of partners that were generating cool, interesting, smart, and and problem-solving, most important apps yes. that would sit on top of that platform and, and be used broadly in various different marketplaces. Mm-hmm. And um, in that, when you recognize something like that, you realize you can't do it all on your own uh, as yeah. much as we all would like to. Mm-hmm. Um, we realized there were so many companies out there that had really interesting ideas, but at times were having trouble getting off the ground. Um, when we started R3, it was by no means a guarantee that we would raise the money that we did. Um, it was by no means a guarantee that we would have the, have, have the success that we've had to date. And every day we are meeting with entrepreneurs all over the world and we see the fire in their eyes. We see the innovative spirit. We see the commercial hunger and yet they need a head start. And yeah. it can be something as, as small as uh, an early investment. It can even be mentoring and even soft stuff that we give to them. But there are times that we're cutting checks, uh, uh, even at a seed stage or even you know at times up to a Series A stage, where we have decided the, these companies not only have a problem-solving app that could be real, but they've got a business model that makes sense. They're hiring the right talent. And we're willing to put our money behind that to ensure yeah. that, that they succeed. And we now have, uh, as of a few weeks ago, investments over, I think, 30 investments all in. Mm -hmm. Um, We've deployed over $10 million. That number is going to keep increasing and increasing at a greater rate. Mm -hmm. Um, And the more that we're out in the market doing that, the more people are hearing about that, the more they come to rely on us because they know we're willing to put our money behind our product in a way that many other companies are not. Yeah, no, thank you. That was a very good way of describing kind of what's been going on. Um, and I'll link to a recent press release in the bio of this episode if people want to learn more, but that was very succinct. Thank you. Well, I'm a communications officer. I was gonna say, you I, should know that. I laid it up for you yeah. and you could slam it down. I do talk for a living sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, sometimes. Um, <laughs> another point that you had made earlier, uh, it kind of harkens back to the recent piece in the Global Risk Regulator by our CEO, David E. Rutter. Yes. Um, at, at even at, Just at the beginning, just to kind of refresh on what you were just touching on before, um, it says it, meaning the pandemic, has shown that almost every industry is capable of rap- rapid digital transformation when needed, and many industries' histories will now be forever split into two distinct chapters, pre- and post-COVID-19. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? So I, I'm always fascinated between, uh, I'm always fascinated with the perspectives on retail or consumer type products and business and enterprise type products. Mm-hmm. We are three fall on the ladder. Yeah. <clears throat> and 
if you're uh, if you're a typical consumer and you're getting the latest uh, smartphone mm-hmm. and you're downloading operating systems every week, every few days, every couple of months, uh, you're getting new apps on your phone all the time. You actually think that that pace of technological development exists around the world, that that's the way things are. Yeah. But the reality is that isn't how large institutions work. Um, it certainly isn't how major corporations work, how yeah. large financial institutions work. And there's a sliding scale. Some are you know, far more innovative than others. But as a general matter, the systems that these banks are using or that uh, exchanges are using or clearinghouses are using or even other companies like insurance companies or shipping companies or what have you, the systems that they're using are not updating every day you update your iPhone. Yeah. In some cases, they are using both hardware and software that has been in place not just for years, in some cases, decades. Yeah. And that's really amazing to think about. And therefore, there are, uh, I think what COVID did to David's point in the op-ed was lay bare that many of these institutions had been relying upon old systems because they were enough, mm-hmm. not because they were great. Totally. But what COVID has done is shined a light on that. You can't hide behind broken systems anymore. And as all the competitors now are beginning to look for the next way to innovate. Yeah. And they realize the next way of innovating is not just a question of squeezing margins a bit and tinkering around the edges. It's entirely new products. It's a way of bringing capital to market. It's a way of employing more people. It's a way of ensuring the uh, the longevity of your institution suddenly this slow rate of innovation that we that we see on the institutional side um, is really begin to beginning to increase yeah uh, and COVID sparked that I, I'm not saying we'll ever get to the point in time where banks are updating their software or exchanges <laughs> are updating their software or shipping companies are updating their software at the rate at which my iPhone updates yeah I don't even have to do it it does it itself. <laughs> That doesn't work at an institutional level. Yeah. But now they've gotten that. Now, now they've hit, they've hit that realization, and COVID really brought that home. It's one of the unfortunate. Uh, it's one of the the small fortunate things that came out of this was it was it was a clarifying moment. We all wish this hadn't happened. Yeah. Um. Unfortunately, it did. But I think it taught us some lessons that we were long overdue to learn. Yeah, lessons in and out of the business world, I'm sure, for most. Oh, yes. yes, no <laughs> doubt. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's an interesting piece, especially because, um, I mean, for me, being in the position I am, millennial, like emerging tech, of course, this all makes sense. Why wouldn't you want to move on to this new technology? You can do this, that, and the next thing. You can save millions and billions of dollars. To me, I'm like, duh. But this piece kind of also... Um, brings to light that there are very smart, successful people in highly regulated companies who are slower to to adapt this technology and are slower to to kind of conform to the quote digital age because of what? Because it's hard to implement, because change is difficult, because I don't know. Like, to me, I'm like, no-brainer, let's go. But what are the things that are stopping these institutions, highly regulated institutions at that, um, from adapting technology pre-COVID? Maybe still now people are dipping their toes in. But what's the hesitation? Well, I mean, there's probably a... uh uh, a lesson in Max Weber or something that we could pull down about the power of bureaucracy to slow <laughs> things down and to and, and and to cause all sorts of difficulties. I mean, I think it's several things. Large institutions inherently don't work as quickly as small ones. Yep. 
Um, one of the things you find in startups is we constantly try to act like a startup, even as we grow to be a small, medium-sized business, because we don't want to lose that edge. We don't want to lose that ability to innovate. Agreed. Large companies often do, and they have to fight harder to be able to do that. There's an institutional resistance. Um, yeah. We talk about an institution as a thing rather than a set of people, and there really is something to that because an institution takes on something more than just the sum of the people that work there. <laughs> and if an institution is slow to innovate, it doesn't matter how many people you have in the organization who are willing to do it. There are times it just becomes harder. So I think that's yeah. part of it. Uh, there's also a regulatory component. Yep. Um, if you are operating in a heavily regulated industry or if you're operating uh, in, in a highly complex industry in terms of the types of transactions that are going on or, the, or what you're delivering to your clients, every incremental change carries with it risk yeah. um, that updating your iPhone does not come with. If you update your iPhone and it point. doesn't go well, that's your problem. You can go out and you can fix your iPhone. Right? Yeah. If you update an entire software package that, under, uh, that, that underpins an insurance platform, for instance, the way in which you sell insurance to Ooh. consumers or the way in which you track shipping containers, we do a lot in trade finance and supply chain at R3. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you implement an entirely new way, computer, a, a digital way of doing that, and the system doesn't work, the stakes of that are so much higher. Yeah, and as a result, I think institutions are scary of making those changes. And there's always the the sort of sort of Damocles hanging over your head this this regulatory moment where, what if good enough is good enough because regulators have already approved it? What if I start doing something different that mm -hmm. hasn't met with the approval of regulators? Yeah, and and you know I, I I've used this example before, but I think it's an important one. Um, if if you're an Uber or an Airbnb you you can take a chance or you're maybe willing to take a chance and you may be willing to joust with the taxi cab commission of a small city mm -hmm. um, or or the department or the city agency that oversees the hotels, for instance. Okay. Yeah. Okay. If you're a heavily regulated institution, the financial services, for instance, and something goes wrong, the the people knocking at your door are the Securities and Exchange Commission. Yep. Or the Federal Reserve Bank, and they're backed by U.S. Marshals, mm -hmm. and and or they can be. Now that's an extreme example. You know, I, I'm using that for effect in the podcast. But the point is, um, facing off against the Fed, facing off against the Bank of England or the Monetary Authority of Singapore is a very, very Ooh. different risk to take. Yeah, it threatens you at an existential level, and therefore, I think that also causes a concern about rapid innovation where what if I get out ahead and I break something that was working, what sort of regulatory impact will that have on us? Yeah. The good thing is, is I think that's beginning to loosen. And I think regulators are also seeing the importance of letting that loosen and allowing entities to begin to explore with things that they ultimately probably didn't in the last several years. Yeah. And I think that's beginning to come, uh, come undone a bit. And I think in a very positive way for innovation. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, you threw on my desk just paper uh, airplaned onto my desk, this uh, statement from the SEC, which yes. kind of uh, is obviously related to that. Tell me about that. So yesterday, teach the me staff, things. Uh, <laughs> teach you things. Well, God, if you're coming to me, you're in trouble. Um, so yesterday, the staff at the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. um, we're doing this podcast from the U.S., but it being global, I'm clarifying that this is the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and could have been done by any other regulator around the world. Yep. Um, issued a statement um, of, I would say, extreme caution or, or strong caution yeah. uh, for people that are investing in mutual funds that have a stake in Bitcoin futures. Mm -hmm. And the caution uh, in the statement was 
read the disclosures very carefully and be aware that this is a highly speculative investment. Yeah. Now, interestingly, uh, Hester Prynne, who's a Republican commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission, just before we got on the podcast, um, came back to express some level of, I think, concern or reservation on her part about what the staff had put out. Okay. Um, and there will always be that tension. Hester, yeah. known for known to many people as the crypto mom, uh, has been uh, <laughs> incredibly supportive of the industry. Uh, and innovation and ensuring that government policies were put in place or, or removed, actually, or, or, or both that would allow for a healthy, innovative climate uh, uh, in this area. But what this does show is getting back to the crypto thing we, we said at the beginning, but it also goes through deploying software and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. The more that you get regulatory attention, there's a pro and there's a con. Yeah. Um, the pro is if you are working with regulators and you are helping them understand in a fully transparent way what you're doing and why you're doing it, and they get comfortable with it, then you can express the comfort of those regulators onto potential clients into an industry, and they will in turn have comfort to innovate. Yeah. If a large bank knows that the central bank or the securities regulator of their country is predisposed to approve of or to accept an innovation, they're more likely to take it. Yeah. But the flip side is when regulators start looking at things, they don't always have the same perception or they might by definition, because it's a government agency tasked with protecting the the way the functioning of markets, they tend towards a more risk averse posture. Uh, And therefore, the more scrutiny that is brought on, the more likely it is that regulators step in at some point and say, well, hang on a second. Yeah. And that's that's one of the concerns I, I believe with this with this current uh, uh, rapid rise in crypto, is that more and more regulators are paying attention. I can tell you that that we have we have gotten more phone calls, both from reporters trying to understand exactly what this all means, mm-hmm. um, and from government stakeholders in governments around the world, uh, in in all in all various different jurisdictions, including across APAC. Um, what does this mean and why should we be concerned, et cetera? And when they're asking those questions, the thing that I would encourage you know, the, 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 the crypto enthusiasts out there is you have to take these people seriously and you have to be willing to tell, their, tell your story to them. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not going to tell your story to them, somebody else will. And it may yeah. not be the story that you feel is fair or, or, or wants to be told. Um, regulators actually thrive on and they seek input from private sector all the time every day. Yeah, But we've got to be willing to show up at their door and do the work and meet them halfway and share that story and share the understanding and the explanations with them so that we bring them along on that journey. Because if yeah. not, if they're <laughs> only looking at it through the risk-averse prism and they haven't heard what we're willing to tell them and what we're able to tell them and give them that confidence, I don't think the result is going to be a terribly innovative climate. Oof. That's a lot of <laughs> that's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> I mean, the the government relations stuff and is pretty fascinating to me because that also educating other people it, it just seems like it's like a huge huge weight at this point. <laughs> it's a lot of responsibility having to educate these people and and kind of guide them through the yeses and the noes of the new technology and like I don't know. That's it's a, it's incredibly important, and I think it's 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 oftentimes little understood because technology companies, by definition, don't think of a heavy regulatory hand in the same way that various different other totally. industries do. Totally. Now, 
many of them, the big players, the Googles and the Facebooks and Twitter, when, when they're under federal scrutiny, I mean, they finally got the message. And some of these, some of these shops have 100-person offices, 200-person offices down in Washington, yeah. uh, in the city of London by Whitehall, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, et cetera, helping make the case. Yeah. Um, but they came to the party late. Yeah. And it's interesting when, when I have conversations, even internally with some of the members of our own company who are technologists, their answer oftentimes to me is, well, what does the government have to do with it? We're just building software. I understand that. And I understand yeah. that inclination because if you grew up, if you came of age as a professional building software and the regulatory burden didn't fall on you as a company, it actually felt on potentially a user of the software or frankly, it fell on an unregulated, there was no regulatory burden because you were selling to unregulated industry. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily make intuitive sense as to why the government relations practice becomes important. Yeah. But we, when we started R3, we started with a government relations practice. It was totally. called regulatory affairs then. And we found ourselves, it was quite surprising. We would be out in meetings all over the world and we would ask regulators, who else have you spoken to? And they would say, nobody. Yeah. No, nobody has come to us yet. Yeah. Luckily that's changing. Yeah. Uh, and you see far more activity. And, and I don't just mean recently, this is this for the last several years, Companies have been ramping up their activities. You've seen trade associations launched around the world, yeah. uh, yeah, quasi-governmental agencies that are working with us in the public-private partnerships and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, an, it's an incredibly important role, yeah. but it's one little understood because what, one thing I have found totally. in my career, and I spent a lot of time in politics, is if people don't like really like politics, like actually love it, they don't pay any attention to it because it yeah. just doesn't resonate with them. Yeah. So trying to explain to someone who doesn't, fully care or pay attention yeah. to how governments work, what governments relations people do. It's just this sort of opaque black box. Yeah. And we're on, we're on the defense trying to protect the company. And it's not always a public publicly done something. It's not always done through press releases and speeches. It's done through old shoe leather, door to door, yeah. shaking hands, talking to the right people and making the case. And it's, uh, you know, it, it can be, it can be a bit more quiet than some of the others, but it's yeah. incredibly important. Yeah, I remember even within the company, uh, I time is so confusing to me right now. Must have been like two years ago. I remember we had, uh, I think it was at the time Reg Affairs, just like town hall where Isabel Corbett was like, all right, listen, this is what we're doing, okay? <laughs> like, I don't want to hear like, what are they doing in government relations? Like, blah, 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 this is what we're doing. And you may not always hear about it, but it's a very important role. So everyone sit down. <laughs> I remember, and yeah. also Isabel's the, so great, um, and she's a commanding force. I, I I feel like she was walking around the meeting room talking, and everyone was like, "Oh, we're never going to ask her again." <laughs> Isabel Isabel is incredibly talented, and incredibly intense. Uh, there's, no, there's no question. Love her. There's no question. Love her. Uh, and she runs it day to day, and we've got a great team uh, with uh, uh, with Jack Fletcher and Indrasupia and, and, and various different outside firms. Yeah. Um, that help us because it really is a, it really is a team effort. Um, but th there was a moment of real validation, I think, uh, well early on because at times we would run into people who wouldn't get it. But Isabel, uh, as she told me, had an, had an anecdote where she ran into Kat Baker. And, and, and Kat, for your listeners who don't know, is one of the top engineers at the company. Yeah. Uh, incredibly talented uh, technologist. Um, and it was not lost on her at all. She said something like, Isabel, like, you're all the people that you, you, you are the people that make it possible for us to do what we do. Very cool. And 
that really is it. Yeah. Because if a regulator decides to show up and shut something down or cause difficulties, that can be an existential problem for a company our size. Yeah. Um, and it is a critical role. And more and more, I think the technologists begin to see it. And more and more, we bring technologists to these meetings. And I think they have a, a fun time. They That's probably cool. think we're all crazy when we're down <laughs> in Washington or Whitehall or what have you. Um, but when they get involved and they see the, 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 the heavy policy concerns that people on Capitol Hill or in Parliament or, or in Brussels are, are grappling with, to be a part of that debate, to feel like they can contribute to that, I think is actually quite exciting and, and, and meaningful for them. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, Charlie Cooper, thank you so much for joining me today in the studio. It actually yeah, we, has been great. It has been so much fun. We have our uh, wraps because, again, the office is freezing. But I feel like, you know, this is great. We're I'm wrapped happy. in blank. We just need a campfire in the middle of the podcast table. <laughs> I, know. I know. Get some s'mores. Yeah, exactly. We really are wrapped Maybe up. Maybe a warm brandy drink. Oh, yeah, it's probably time for that. That would be nice. It is time for that, looking at my watch. Um, anyways, thank you so much for joining me today. I learned a lot. There's, there's also a lot of what we talked about. Um, we've had recent news come out. So if, if you're interested, go to the bio of this episode, and you can check out some of the articles, op-eds, statements, and all that stuff, um, and read more for yourself. Cool. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life in the Fast Chain. Moving forward, I'm going to make sure to record every episode in the studio so we can get away from Zoom life. I'm sure we are all tired of the constant Zoom calls and not being able to be in person. Um, so I'm not going to let the podcast be another Zoom touch point. We have enough of that Zoom WebEx teams, whatever you use uh, to keep in touch with everyone. We're going into the office here, um, or at least starting to if you're comfortable and or vaccinated. So um, I'm going to make sure to give you the best content coming out of the R3 studio in New York City. Um, definitely focusing more on recent R3 news and uh, what's going on with cryptocurrencies. Because honestly, I know it, it's in our world. It's not our main focus here at R3, clearly, but it is in our world. And honestly, I don't know how to even talk about cryptos right now on the podcast because yesterday I log on to uh, my coin market cap just to see what's going on in the market. And yesterday, all I see is green. It's up in the last seven days. Every single crypto that I'm looking at, up, 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 up in the last 24 hours, it's up. Now I log on today, everything's red, everything's down. And granted, saying that Bitcoin is, is still at 50,000, but like, th yes, things are down by a little bit. Things are still skyrocketed. If you think about what's happened in the last few years, but still, how am I supposed to talk about this up, 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 down, down, down. What is going on? By the time this releases, we could be like skyrocketed on a different planet in cryptos. Um, everything is changing so quickly. So, uh, with that in mind, again, as Charlie and I said on the podcast earlier, we are not uh, <laughs> we are not advising anyone to do anything, to be very clear. Um, I'm sure the le legal team here at R3 would appreciate me saying that. Anyways, if you like this episode of the podcast, make sure to, uh, and you haven't listened to other ones, definitely listen to some of the recent ones. Uh, the last one was on Conclave. If you 
want to learn more about confidential computing or at least want to know how our three got into this space, that's a very good episode um, with Richard Gendel Brown and Mike Hearn. Uh, very fun for me to go down memory lane with them a little bit. And there are so many other recent episodes that have been really, really good. So if this is your first episode in a while, um, definitely listen back. And if not, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and get the latest episodes. Um, I think I hit all of my bases. Uh, you know, share the podcast, friends and family, people who want to learn more. We're all about educating here at R3. So uh, thank you for listening to this episode. See you next time. Bye.